This is The Guardian. I would love to be having a, a front page of The Telegraph with a, fly, a plane taking off to Rwanda. That's my dream. That's my dream. When will that happen? Um, not for a while yet. The Supreme Court has ruled that the government's most high-profile policy for tackling illegal immigration is unlawful. Is this the end of the Rwanda policy? And as Labour tears itself apart over whether to call for a ceasefire in Gaza, who finishes this week in worse shape? Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer? I'm Kieran Stacey, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today is The Guardian's diplomatic editor, Patrick Winter. Hi, Patrick. Hello there. We're recording right now from a slightly noisy corner of the Westminster Palace, where we've just been watching the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak give his press conference about that Rwanda decision. Uh, It may not feel like it, but it was only Monday when Rishi Sunak stunned the House of Commons by sacking Suella Braverman as Home Secretary and bringing David Cameron back into government as his Home Secretary. Downing Street, I remember, was absolutely jubilant on Monday, not least because the news didn't leak in advance. But they'll be feeling much less so today after the Supreme Court ruled that their plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda is unlawful. Patrick, you remember these kinds of days from when you were political editor. How does this rank for you in terms of drama, memorable weeks, <laughs> bearing in mind that we're recording now, it's still only Wednesday? <laughs> well, we seem to talk about this era of polycrisis, but in terms of the Conservative Party, we're in kind of an era of permacrisis. So in a way, this is just another week of the sort of disaster that has been become the Conservative <laughs> Party. But I mean, in terms of my my memory, uh, you know, my memory, I'm afraid, goes back to people like Norman Lamont resigning, Geoffrey uh, Howe, and at the time, Brexit. And at the time, all these moments feel like they are the most dramatic moment ever in the history of Parliament. But as I say, because we've got into a state where this Conservative Party is in such a permanent state of crisis, uh, it's difficult to sort of put it partic- in one particular place on the Richter scale. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about polycrisis. This has started to remind me of the last days of the Brown government, where really they couldn't do anything without it blowing up in their faces. Once you're in that position as a government, things just seem to unravel in front of you. But let's just turn to what's happened. We're recording this on Wednesday. What happened this morning? Over the course of about 30 minutes, Lord Reid, the president of the Supreme Court, dealt a massive blow to Rishi Sunak's entire plan to cut illegal immigration with that ruling that deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda would be unlawful. Let's hear some of what he said. Asking ourselves whether there were substantial grounds for believing that a real risk of reformment existed at the relevant time, we have concluded that there were. The changes needed to eliminate the risk of reformant may be delivered in the future, but they have not been shown to be in place now. The Home Secretary's appeal is therefore dismissed. All right, Patrick, let's just go back a step. Tell us where this whole Rwanda idea started and why it's so important to the Tory party now. Well, Rishi Sunak has five pledges, most of which no one can remember because they're very arcane issues such as um, sort of halving the debt or cutting the inflation by X or Y and uh, leave everyone cold. But the one they do remember is stop the boats because uh, certainly in Tory focus groups, immigration and particularly this idea that people are coming uh, seeking asylum from France and not being sent back is 
absolutely resonant and uh, it's the one thing that the Tory party is united about the need to do something about it the problem has been that uh, the proposal which was central to all this was that um, a deterrent was going to be inserted by ensuring that any asylum seeker coming to the UK would be with, without good reason would be deported uh, by plane to Rwanda and what has happened over sort of three court periods, um, High Court, Court of Appeal, and today the Supreme Court, it's been declared that this is unlawful. And what's worrying for the government is it this is declared unlawful, not just because of conflicts with the European Convention on Human Rights, the court in Strasbourg, but also with other international law. And now Rishi Sunak is having to try to unravel what's happened and be able to say to the British public, those flights that he's banked so much on will happen by spring. So it's not just stop the boats, it's start the flights. Yeah, you mentioned that Rishi Sunak's banked so much on it. The government's actually spent £140 million in payments to Rwanda already, which is money they're not going to be able to get back. Um, let's just go to why exactly they issued this ruling. The, the whole crux of the legal matter seemed to rest on a word I'd confess I'd not heard before, which is refoulement. That's the idea that asylum seekers could get returned back to the country they've fled from. Um, what, what was it they said about this? Well, they said that's unlawful and there's no guarantee that that won't happen, that Rwanda has done that in the past. The UK said they had drawn up a memorandum of understanding with Rwanda to prevent this occurrence. But the courts have said that is not sufficient. There has to be a treaty. Uh, so it binds both countries. Um, and I, I find it amazing that Home Office didn't think in advance that memorandum would be insufficient. They also had a difficulty in that the, the UN um, High Commission on Refugees sort of intervened in the case and produced a lot of evidence that I think the courts found quite compelling about the way in which Rwanda has treated refugees and also the state of human rights in the country. Right. And as you mentioned, this isn't just about the European Convention on Human Rights, is it? And, and the, the UN's involvement in this case suggests the same. This is a whole raft of domestic and international uh, legislation and agreements that the court said would be would be contravened by this. So is there any hope really for the government to get this plan off the ground? Well, they have a sort of game plan, which is what Rishi Sunak was trying to present to people at this press conference. He was trying to sound calm, that he knew what he was still going to do. Uh, and so there's two stages to it, which is one, turn that memorandum into a treaty. And secondly, to pass domestic legislation saying that the UK Parliament thinks it is legal and safe to send these uh, asylum seekers by flights to Rwanda. And he, at the back of this press conference, but he wasn't really pressed on it sufficiently, said that uh, if it then subsequently appeared that the European courts, what he called the Strasbourg courts, uh, he was obviously trying to present them as some kind of alien body, <laughs> uh, tried to say that what he was doing was unlawful. He was prepared to ignore what the European court said, uh, but he didn't really quite spell that out. And I think that's where people will be pulling at the threads of that uh, overnight and the lawyers will be looking at that. And I think that's what a lot of Conservative Party backbenchers want to want to happen. They want to have a statement that uh, the UK will pull out of the ECHR. All right, so let's go on to that press conference. Here's what Rishi Sunak actually said. We will take the extraordinary step of introducing emergency legislation. 
This will enable Parliament to confirm that with our new treaty, Rwanda is safe. It will ensure that people cannot further delay flights by bringing systemic challenges in our domestic courts and stop our policy being repeatedly blocked. But of course, we must be honest about the fact that even once Parliament has changed the law here at home, we could still face challenges from the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. I told Parliament earlier today that I'm prepared to change our laws and revisit those international relationships to remove the obstacles in our way. So let me tell everybody now, I will not allow a foreign court to block these flights. Okay, so those were Rishi Sunak's words. Um, do you think this is enough now to placate his backbenchers, many of whom think that uh, stopping the boats is almost as important, if not more important to voters than uh, as the economy? Well, he wasn't able to give a guarantee that the flights would start in the spring, which I think is what he would would have dearly loved to have said. And uh, just the history of this shows that the courts have got an ability to intervene at so many stages, either domestically or via the ECHR, that I think he's he's really trapped um, at the moment. And maybe in retrospect, it was a mistake to bank so much on this idea of deporting people to Rwanda by flights, because he actually is legitimate point to make, which is the number of crossings from uh, France is down by a third this year. And that's partly because he's coming to agreements with countries in Europe. And maybe he should have focused on as much on that as on this sort of issue of trying to send people to Rwanda. I just wonder how many people in the UK think that is the right way to proceed. Well, uh, you mentioned, obviously, it's a pretty eye-catching pledge to say stop the boats. Do you think he should have just said reduce the boats? <laughs> I think uh, reduce the boats is, given the degree to which the Tory party wants something to happen about this, is is not enough. I mean, but the Tory party has been through a long history of uh, making pledges about reducing the net flow of migration and immigration, and uh, they rarely uh, work. You're dealing with very, very big global forces, and to uh, just say you're going to be able to break this forces that easily is, I think, uh, risky. Yeah, and, and one interesting dynamic of this is he's obviously now given this press conference where he says, if I need to, I will override the ECHR. It, isn't, it wasn't clear to me whether he meant override or actually pull out of it. But we know that he doesn't want to do it. He's said to be allergic to the idea. And the man that he's just put in charge of the Home Office, James Cleverly, has also said he's no fan of pulling out of the ECHR. He told our political editor Pippa Creera that back in April. So how is James Cleverly going to be able to square this circle and, and keep his backbenchers on board? Well, I think it's what you're trying to say about this is that this is something we've got in our back pocket when we'll do this if it's necessary, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But he's already said in principle he's willing to challenge the ECHR in some way or another. He hasn't said he's willing to withdraw altogether from the convention. And I think he's got to be careful about that because there are other international implications uh, if he did so, including the UK's relationship with the European Union and also some of the trade agreements that we have with the European Union. So it's not a it's not a, a simple thing to do whatsoever. Um, there'd be a real outcry, and also there'd be very practical problems with the European Union. And you're our diplomatic editor. What would Joe Biden's administration have to say about it? Um, I think Joe Biden's administration would really just love to have a functioning British government. <laughs> uh, uh, um, 
rather than and i mean it's almost every time there's a world crisis that the uk manages to decide to look inwards and have a sort of internal firing squad and i, I think it that's what's causing despair amongst um britain's natural allies is that this is such an unreliable partner at the moment well, Labour's having fun with this as well. Maybe that's not quite the right phrasing. But uh, Yvette Cooper was making hay with it, I would say, in the Commons when she referred to comments that uh, she says James Cleverly made in private, although we don't know who to. I don't believe the new Home Secretary ever believed in the Rwanda plan. He distanced himself from it and his predecessor's language on it. He may even on occasion have privately called it batshit. But he and I. That was Yvette Cooper talking about James Cleverley, the current Home Secretary. He's been in his job about two days now, taking over from Suella Bravman, who was a strong backer of the Rwanda deal, but was fired on Monday as part of that wider reshuffle. On Tuesday evening, she published an absolutely astonishing, excoriating resignation letter in which she referred to a secret agreement she says she made with Sunak for what he should do in government, an agreement she now says he has betrayed. The letter has plenty of interesting bits to pick over, but here's one that jumped out to me. In one paragraph, she says, You have manifestly and repeatedly failed to deliver on every single one of these key policies. Either your distinctive style of government means you're incapable of doing so, or as I must surely conclude now, you never had any intention of keeping your promises. Patrick, how much of a threat does she and her allies pose to the Prime Minister right now? Um, I don't think they, I think, don't think she poses a threat to him. Immediately, I think the most of the Conservative Party MPs, anyways, those that I know and those few ones who seem to be sane, are absolutely sure that a uh, another change in the Conservative Party leadership would be uh, just uh, disastrous. I think actually the Conservative press know that as well, and that it would, um, if the Tory Party has to lose the next election, they may as well lose it with some dignity rather than uh, through another kind of change in. Leadership. I mean, I think just a couple of thoughts about what's happened to the Tory party. One is that the sort of regicides become sort of habit forming, that changing a leader has become just a, a way of life in the Conservative Party. The second is I think they've too many people in the Conservative Party have already given up on winning the next election. So they're now fighting the leadership election they expect to have afterwards. So they're in a different time zone to the rest of the country. There's a sense that because the country is less influential, less powerful, there's fewer breaks on the Conservative Party from behaving like this because there's less of a price to pay. And then lastly, I just think there's a whole mental struggle going on inside the Tory party about what sovereignty means. And that goes back to Brexit. And here they are still struggling about the degree to which we are able to take back control uh, in an era of sort of globalisation. And I don't think they've really sorted that out. There's a theory as well that they're listening too much to the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph, which give them a slightly distorted view of what voters really think. Is that more of a problem now than it ever was? No, I don't think that's... I've never known... Uh, um, all my period when I was in the lobby, uh, the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph were always the two sort of lighthouses that the uh, Tory party looked to, and that's whom they've always looked to. And uh, it's often led them to making some very disastrous choices about who should be their leader. Uh, whether it's William Hague or Ian Duncan Smith, and that's often been based on the advice given to them by the Daily Telegraph. Patrick, as you say, Rishi Sunak has found himself in this trap. But we're also speaking on the day when inflation came down quite sharply, and he does seem to have now met one of those pledges to halve inflation by the end of the year. When it comes to a general election, how much is it going to matter if he hasn't managed to stop the boats? 
I think the boats is the pledge that people will remember amongst those five pledges. So that is going to be a difficulty. But I think it's about a broader perception that this is a, a government that's sort of run out of energy uh, and that they don't feel that Rishi Sunak's the man to sort of, uh, though he's trying to present himself as this agent of change, I just don't feel he's quite got the kind of personality to do that, nor the sets of policies to do that. So I think the um, the boat's pledge, whether it's met or not, is just um, symbolic of something deeper, of a deeper malaise about this government. In a sense, it's it's run out of time. And I think that all goes back to um, many years back. And I think it really goes back to the, the stories about um, party gates and parties in number 10 during COVID. And that's the moment when trust in this government collapsed. Patrick Winter, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks. Okay, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we're going to talk about the ceasefire vote on Wednesday night and what it could mean for Labour. Welcome back. I'm now joined by our political correspondent, Alita Adu. Hi, Alita. Hi, Kieran. Okay, so now it's uh, nearly nine o'clock and the voting has just finished in the House of Commons. Meanwhile, there are huge protests taking place outside, calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas conflict. And that's what the House has just been voting on. Okay, Alita, tell us what's been happening tonight on quite a dramatic night over there in the Commons. An extremely dramatic night, Kieran. Um, We had eight front benches essentially quit their positions, defy Keir Starmer's leadership in a huge rebellion and essentially back a ceasefire amendment that Whips had instructed all Labour MPs not to do. The pressure has been mounting on Starmer's position for you know, more than a month now since that LBC interview. We heard of dozens, you know, tenfolds of of councillors quitting their positions and that was putting mounting pressure on MPs, uh, particularly MPs with a high proportion of Muslim voters in their constituencies. And tonight we have seen just that. The most high profile resignation tonight that we've seen is from Jess Phillips, who I'm sure it will really uh, hurt the Labour leadership that she decided to, you know, do ex- exactly what her constituents have called for. So, Alita, what did Jess Phillips say? In, a, in her resignation letter, Jess Phillips told Kistama that this week was one of the toughest weeks in her political career. She said she's tried to do everything that she could to make it so that this was not the outcome, so that this she was not quitting her front bench position, but added that it's with a heavy heart that she's had to do just that. We heard uh, Asfal Khan hours before the actual vote in the chamber, um, essentially outlining the fact that he felt the humanitarian crisis in Gaza had gone way too far. Um, I understand that Afsal had been extremely unhappy with Labour's position for many weeks, but was doing his best to sort of stay within the team and try and see if he could steer the leadership's understanding of why many MPs were sort of hoping that they would that Starmer would eventually call for a ceasefire. But ultimately, as of yesterday, he just felt that, you know, the pressure was too much. His constituents felt that, you know, MPs needed to take a stand and be on the right side of history. And he believes that he's done just that. Um, I bumped into him on my way here and 
He said, you know, he feels okay, a bit sad, but ultimately felt that he's still done the right thing. So this is a huge rebellion. We've got 56 Labour MPs altogether who defied the whips to back that ceasefire motion. As you mentioned, Jess Phillips, one of the most interesting ones, partly because she comes from the centre of the party. She's regularly clashed with the Corbynites and she's also a member of the Labour Friends of Israel. But one of the things I think that tells us is, especially in constituencies like hers, where there is a very large Muslim vote, uh, people are feeling under real pressure. And some of these MPs, I suspect, were worried that they might lose their seats. But let's talk about Keir Starmer. You know, you mentioned he'd put out a statement afterwards, and he's been expressing disappointment. But how big a blow for him is this? Um, As you say, I mean, Jess Phillips is a surprising uh, resignation because she is, you know, on the right side of the party. And so is Afsal Khan, who is largely seen as a as a party loyalist. Alongside Yasmin Qureshi, they've all been very loyal to Starmer's leadership so far, including the likes of Sarah Owen. So it's not just a sort of factional left-wing, yeah, right-wing division. Yeah, suspects, right? Exactly. And um, it will be quite hard for the leadership to, you know, sort of maintain that balance and ensure that Labour, across its front bench, continues to be a broad church, as Starmer was, you know, celebrating a few weeks ago when it was suggested that uh, front benches were not going to be punished for sort of going against the position. Obviously, (laughs) that is no longer the case. But I mean, who will be willing to step up into these shoes? I mean, will MPs want to go against their colleagues who have voted on such an emotional issue? Well, yeah, I mean, in fact, how many MPs is he going to have to draw on to fill these junior shadow ministerial roles, given that so many backbenchers did rebel? He'll have to choose from among those who didn't. But there's another question here. I understand why the rebels did what they did. But why is Labour not backing a ceasefire? Why is Starmer so determined not to use that word? Yes, well, Labour has been closely following the government's position on pushing for humanitarian pauses. And obviously, the government is closely following the United States, uh, Joe Biden administration's position on calling for this. We know this is a very fast moving situation. And we know that discussions are taking place every single day, cross-party, you know, internationally. Um, I was told a few weeks ago when uh, Starmer met with the Labour Muslim MPs shortly after he visited a mosque and the visit was seen to have gone not so well. Many of the MPs came out of that meeting sort of assured that, yes, eventually the leadership may go and use the ceasefire word, but not just yet. They just, they don't want to seem as outliers and they don't want to seem as though they're getting a bit ahead of themselves. So do you think he will eventually back down as some Labour MPs seem to believe he will? I think, as he said in his statement, this is about leadership and he is keen to demonstrate what he would be like as a leader as a potential prime minister under a Labour government after the next election. And he wants to be seen as somebody who is sort of able to read the international situation, you know, speak to leaders and not just jump the gun, but move as a unit. So probably the best hope for any Labour MP hoping that he'll budge is that Joe Biden budges first. Uh, So ultimately not good for Keir Starmer. He's lost a bunch of front benches. 
he's certainly suffered a, a blow to his authority. Um, I guess the calculation he makes is that in a year's time, people won't be voting on this issue. And if anything resonates with the wider public, maybe he thinks he's just underlined the fact that he's not Jeremy Corbyn once again. Yeah, so obviously the scale of the rebellion is huge. Um, internally, it's going to be very worrying that this many MPs are ready at this point when Labour is doing so well in the polls to, you know, quit their positions at this moment in time. Um, will the public remember this in about a year's time? I mean, it depends on how fast the conflict is is moving. The public usually devotes votes on domestic issues. I mean, whether they will widely see Keir Starmer as being somebody who has made a huge influence to the government's position on this conflict and also the international position on the conflict. I mean, we'll, we're yet to be seen. Ultimately, we must remember that Labour can't really do anything. It is an opposition party, but it is about standing for something, as many of these MPs have said. So it'll be interesting to see if the public believe that Starmer has used this crisis as a chance to show what he stands for, what he believes in. Alita, it's now late on Wednesday night. You've been in the Commons all day. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I hope you get some rest soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Cacoutier, the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 